If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to our passage for today, which is Matthew 21, 23 to 32. Again, that's Matthew 21, 23 to 32. Uh, and let's begin our time by reading the passage together. Of course, we've already examined the meaning of this passage last week. And as I mentioned at the end of that message, we're going to take one more look at this passage today to further explore the implications of what Jesus says here. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. Uh, Jesus, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the promised Davidic king on Sunday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple. Now it's Tuesday, and he comes back into the temple that he cleansed just one day before. And Matthew writes this, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will, ask you one, uh, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, the baptism of John, from, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In 2 Corinthians 11.28, the Apostle Paul uh, says something that really used to puzzle me quite a bit. If you're familiar with the letter, then you know that in it Paul explains and even defends his ministry against some false apostles who were apparently trying to discredit him. Uh, These men had attempted to infiltrate and subvert the Corinthian church, and they knew they couldn't do so without first attacking the man who planted that church, the apostle Paul. Uh, For a period of time, it looked as if these false apostles would be successful. They had successfully called Paul's character into question, and for a moment, it looked as if the church would be carried away with them in their apostasy. However, by the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, this uh, momentary rebellion has been stopped. Paul had made a visit to the the church at Corinth, which uh, does not appear to have been a successful visit. He calls it his painful visit in the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, shortly after this, he wrote, uh, what, uh, he wrote a severe letter to the Corinthians, again calling them to abandon the teaching espoused by these false apostles. And from what we can discover in 2 Corinthians, it appears they responded. So as Paul writes this letter, he writes to a repentant church. Even still, it would seem that Paul was yet mindful of the threat posed by these false apostles because he continues to defend his ministry in this letter against the accusations brought by these men. And that's the context where Paul writes in chapter 11. He's defending his ministry against the accusations brought by these false apostles. And in that defense, he recounts some of his credentials, including the suffering that he experienced 
as a witness to Christ, saying this. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With great labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily, daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Well, no doubt, if Paul is wanting to demonstrate the selflessness of his ministry, I think this gets the point across, right? That's an impressive list of suffering that Paul experienced for the sake of the gospel. However, what always used to puzzle me was where Paul ended in this list. I mean, he's going through this this long list of afflictions that he experienced for the sake of the gospel. Imprisonments, lashings, beatings, a stoning, shipwreck, various types of dangers of all different sort. And then he ends on this statement. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I always thought that was odd. He's going through all this amazing list of afflictions, and then at the end, almost as if it's the biggest, most important, most difficult affliction of them all, he says, and then there's the burden I feel for the church. He says, you don't know the stuff I've gone through as an apostle. I've been beaten, jailed, almost executed, almost drowned, and we haven't gotten yet to the burden that I feel for you all. This isn't even including that. As if that's the biggest affliction of them, of them all. I used to read that, and I'd wonder, does Paul really mean this? Is the burden he feels for the church really that significant? Is it that? Is that genuine? I mean, don't get me wrong. I can understand the concern he might have for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but to list that as really the ultimate example of his suffering. Come on, isn't that a little bit extreme? I used to wonder this. And then I became a pastor. And I can now say, I don't, I don't pretend to think that I feel this burden to the degree that the Apostle Paul did, but I can now understand why he would say this, how this could be his chief concern. Folks, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I think of you all the time. And, and I don't just mean that, that as some kind of empty expression, like I'm just saying I think of you often. No, I mean, I spend the vast portion of my day thinking about the people sitting here in this room. You see, Monday morning rolls around and you get up and you go to work and naturally your attention turns to your work. That's what you spend most of your week doing. It's only natural that that consumes your thoughts for most of the week. So, like, I would doubt that you probably ever think of me much, if at all, 
during the week. And I wouldn't expect you to. Your career, your life at home demands that your attention be fixed on other things. I'm a pastor, though. That is, in a sense, my career, my job. This means that when I roll out of bed on Monday morning, the only thing that I have to fix my attention on is you. That's my duty, actually, my responsibility, my work, if you can even call it that, is to think about you, is to be concerned with your spiritual growth. That's what consumes my time during the week. I don't think I realized when I decided to become a pastor the kind of impact that that would have on me. In case you haven't figured it out already, I'm more of an introvert. That's just the way I'm naturally wired. I'm always, I've always tended to be more interested in ideas than people. That's kind of how I think I, I viewed the pastorate at first. I think I just saw it as kind of an opportunity to teach. That's how I thought I could best serve the church, you know, without all the awkwardness of actually trying to talk with other people. I could just get up here for a while, monologue about theology, and then go home. Needless to say, that's not what pastoral ministry is, though. And I've always known that I'd have to try to muddle my way through shepherding the best I knew how, but I never thought I would ever consider myself a shepherd, a pastor, really. Paul's concern for the church seemed like a distant, kind of distant in this respect. I was a teacher, not a pastor. But then I started to actually do this job where every day I wake up and think about the same group of people all day, every day, and all I have to say is, it's changed me. I understand what Paul is saying. To the experience of waking up and thinking about you every day, and through God's grace as He sanctified me over time, I can now say that I worry over you. I worry over you. Like when I go to the Lord in prayer, the things that I yearn for, the things that I ache for, They concern the people that are seated in this room this morning. Now, some of you may say, but you don't don't even know me that well. How can you pray for me like that? You don't even know what to ask for. But I do. I do know what to ask for. Because you see, one of the funny things about a church plant is that it constantly presses you to ask this question. What's the point of the Christian life? What's it all about? We didn't start with a ton of programs or activities here. We hardly started with any people. As you can see... Looking in this room, our ministry is still pretty minimal. So we basically started with a blank canvas. And as you start to fill that picture in and make decisions about what the ministry should be, you're forced to ask questions every day of what the church is to be about and what it should be. And this in turn turns you back to this core question, what is the purpose of the Christian life? What is it all about? The purpose of the church is to edify believers, right? So what does that mean? And as I've asked myself that question over and over again, I've seen that the things that are of the greatest importance in the life of the Christian, they are not shaped very often by our unique and immediate circumstances. They're universal. And they rise above many of the concerns and difficulties we fret over on a daily basis, stretching out instead into eternity. These are the types of things I find myself worrying over during the week as I think about you. They're issues that affect every Christian and which ultimately will follow you into eternity. If you're looking for a specific, specific example of what this looks like, I think today's passage captures it quite well. The concept that Jesus discusses here, it's one of those things that I ache over. Things that I'll quite honestly at times even weep over. 
In this passage, Jesus is immediately confronted by the religious leaders upon returning to the temple. And they're in full-on panic mode. If you recall, up until recently, the crowds had only regarded Jesus as little more than a prophet. But after the healing of the two blind men at Jericho, that all started to change. And by the time he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Basically, they think he's the Messiah. And this is something that the religious leaders were unwilling to accept. We discover in John 11 that one of the reasons they feared Jesus is because they did not regard Him as the Messiah. They rejected Him as an imposter. And so they feared that Jesus was about to lead a popular uprising that would end with the destruction of the Jewish people at Roman hands. Now this is not what Jesus ever intended to do, at least not during His first coming. He makes that clear on a couple of occasions. First with His entrance into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, which was a symbol of gentleness and humility. And then second with His cleansing of the temple, where He essentially told the people of Israel that He would not deliver them on account of their religious hypocrisy. Regardless, this is what the religious leaders thought Jesus was about to do. This was, of course, only punctuated with the temple cleansing. From their perspective, it looks like Jesus is making a radical call to repentance. It looks like He's trying to rally the people around His leadership over against the leadership of the religious establishment that disagreed with His teaching. And by the end of Monday, it appears to be working. Jesus is standing there in the midst of the temple healing the lame and the blind while the children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus is refusing to silence them. This is the religious leader's worst nightmare. And so they're panicked. But they can't come right, come right out and arrest Jesus at this point. He's too popular. At this point, you have this mass of Galileans camped on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they're only too eager to rejoice over the prospect of a Galilean Messiah. Politically, this is an absolute mess from their perspective. This is, really, this is why they, they didn't do anything as Jesus cleansed the temple. They didn't do anything because they couldn't do anything. They were absolutely powerless. He was already too popular with the crowds by this point. There was nothing they could do. So they come into the temple Tuesday with a plan. They try to discredit Jesus. They determine they can't stop him by force, so they go by the only other route that they have available to them at this point, which is to destroy his influence over the crowds by humiliating him in a public debate. Jesus enters into the temple on Tuesday and they start by asking him about the source of his authority. Jesus has claimed a lot of authority over the past several days. He accepted the crowd's adulation and praise. He's letting them call him Messiah. He's rebuked the religious leaders and cleansed the temple. So they ask Jesus, where does this authority come from? And as I mentioned last week, they already know where Jesus is claiming to get his authority. They saw what he did in the temple the day before. He's claiming messianic authority, and he's claiming that he's received this authority from God, but they don't think Jesus can substantiate this claim without testifying about himself. And so they're hoping that he'll answer this question by either saying that God has given him this authority, in which case they can accuse him of blasphemy, or by saying that he acts on his own authority, in which case they can say they have no reason to listen to him. Either way, they ask this question, trying to trap him. Jesus, though, flips the question back on them. 
He says to them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Again, the religious leaders don't think that Jesus has anyone who can testify about him, and they're absolutely wrong. John was already sent ahead of him to prepare the people for his arrival, both by calling the nation to repentance and by formally proclaiming the Messiah's identity to the people. This is why he came baptizing. It was both a call to repentance and the means that God used to reveal his son's identity to John. When the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, it was a sign to John that Jesus was the Son of God, and he started to proclaim this fact until his arrest by Herod Antipas. So John had already witnessed to Jesus' authority. Jesus tells the religious leaders, explain where his authority came from, and then we'll discuss where my authority comes from. Immediately, the religious leaders realize that they have been caught in their own trap. John was incredibly popular among the people. Most regarded him as a prophet. So they say that John's authority, if they say that John's authority is from man, they'll invite the scorn of the crowds. On the other hand, if they say his authority is from heaven, then Jesus will say, so why didn't you listen to him? The religious leaders had rejected both parts of John's message. They neither accepted his call to repentance nor his proclamation of the Messiah. So if they say his baptism was from heaven, then Jesus has caught them. He can simply say, then you already know where my authority is from, so why haven't you believed? Caught in their own trap, the religious leaders decide to punt the question. And they say, we don't know. And this allows Jesus the opportunity, to, the opportunity to immediately go on the attack by rebuking them for their unbelief. Again, John was a popular teacher. The crowds regarded him as a prophet. So even we don't know is not a sufficient answer for the crowds. It's a clear sign to them of the religious leader's unbelief. Jesus catapults off this public expression of unbelief with a series of blistering rebukes for their hard-heartedness which come in the form of three parables. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. Jesus tells the religious leaders there were two sons. Their father came to them and asked them to work work in his vineyard. The first said no, but later regretted it and and, uh, went to work in the field. The second said yes, sir, and then didn't go into the field. Tell me, which one obeyed? And the answer, obviously, well, it was the first one. And Jesus just lays into them, saying, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. It's the second half of this passage. The parable that I ache over. Like when I go to the Lord in prayer for you, And by the way, this isn't just for you. I want to make this clear. This is for me as well. One of the things that I yearn for is captured in the concept that's contained in this parable. As I explained last week, what this parable teaches is that in Jesus' eyes, a mere profession of faith is not enough. It's not enough to merely affirm right doctrine and claim a right relationship with God. What matters is obedience. The one who goes... To heaven in this parable is the one who does the will of Jesus' Father. 
It's the same as what Jesus says in Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is what matters in Jesus' eyes. Not a mere profession of faith, but obedience. Now, as I explained last week, this is not to say, this is, this is not to say that faith alone is not sufficient for salvation. Faith alone is sufficient for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. It's Christ's merit alone that saves us. And that merit, that righteousness, is imputed to us solely by faith. The Scripture is incredibly clear on this. However, it is also clear in stating that obedience is the inevitable fruit of faith. There's no real separation between the two, between Faith and obedience. It's they're, they're interconnected. That's why James says in James 2.17 that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith lives. It's active. It's not a one-time act. The person who truly believes doesn't just believe at that one point in the past when they made a decision, voted yes for Jesus. No, from the Scripture we know that their faith is a product of the work of the Holy Spirit by whom they've been sealed for, uh, for the day of redemption. This means that once a person has faith, they never lose it. It's continual. And because the one who believes, believes continually, it stands to reason that their faith will therefore continually manifest itself in obedience as they actively worship God for His grace and trust in His promises. So there's no real separation between faith and obedience. They're tied together. The one produces the other, inevitably. In fact, they're so tied together, you might even say that faith is the obedience that Jesus demands. And what I mean by that is that while Jesus demands obedience from his followers, he's also careful to point out that mere performance is not necessarily obedience. After all, you look at the religious leaders that he's rebuking in this passage and compare it with the tax collectors and prostitutes. They would have had a superior display of external righteousness. And yet, according to the parable, it's the tax collectors and prostitutes who believed in John's preaching and repented and were baptized. They were the ones that were obedient to the will of their father, not the religious leaders. The religious leaders kept God's word externally. And yet, in this parable, Jesus says that they are the ones who only said, I go, sir, while still disobeying the will of their father. That may seem strange, but when we read this passage in the context of Jesus' ministry, in the context of messages like the Sermon on the Mount, for that matter, when we read this passage in light of Jesus' cleansing of the temple the day before, then it becomes apparent that Jesus' problem with the religious leaders was less what they did and more where it came from. They obeyed the letter of God's law while rejecting its intent. They offered up sacrifices while trusting in their own works. They praised Him with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. God desired compassion, and they only gave sacrifice. God wanted humility, dependence, and faith, and they instead were filled with self-righteous pride. Essentially, they were hypocrites. That was Jesus' problem with the religious leaders' obedience. There was a hypocritical worship that did not proceed from faith. So faith alone is sufficient for salvation, and yet we should understand that this does not mean that faith is alone, 
that it just exists in isolation from works. Rather, rightly exercised faith produces works. That's the concept captured in this parable. And it means that it's not enough to just claim a right relationship with Jesus. It's not enough to merely affirm right doctrine. For a person to exercise true faith, they must also act. And again, there's multiple passages in the, in the passages in the New Testament that speak to this point. Even Paul, the one who so emphatically articulated the idea of justification by grace through faith, even he says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6.9. Clearly, he can't just mean that sinners cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven because then everyone would be disqualified. No, he's talking about those who practice unrighteousness, those who persist in it. They, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So it's not enough for a person to say that they believe. They must actually act on that faith for it to be real, genuine faith. I think it's probably fair to say that we are a doctrinally oriented church. I'll tell you, one of my biggest fears as a pastor is that this is all we would ever be. Doctrine is not enough. It's not enough to merely check the right theological boxes if that theology does not ultimately bear fruit. This is the point of theology. The point of theology is not to simply be right. It's not to win debates. And it is, it is not in and of itself righteous. Let me make that very clear. You are not a better Christian than someone else if you simply know more than them. Sure, that knowledge may reveal a zeal for the truth, and that's commendable, but it's meaningless if that zeal isn't connected with obedience. It's meaningless if that zeal isn't connected with a concern for the application of the truth. It says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-2, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. It doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. If it is not producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if it isn't producing these things, then it's vain. It's empty. This is why I say that my biggest fear is that all we would ever be is a doctrinally oriented church. It's because doctrine is not enough. And I want to be clear. That's not a fear that's directed at you as if you'd be the problem if we ever ended up that way. That's a fear that's directed at me. I understand that to some degree it's my responsibility, it's Clint's responsibility, it's our responsibility collectively as elders to, through the teaching that takes place here, nurture and guide your spiritual life so that you ultimately produce fruit. Again, that's why the church pays me a salary. It isn't just so I can study and give empty messages. It's so that I can direct all my attention at making sure that you are actually growing in Christ. That's my role as an elder, to tend to your spiritual growth. One day, I'm going to have to give an answer to Christ for you. And I'm going to have to give an account for what I've taught you. 
to grow you spiritually. As I reflect over that and then consider what Jesus is saying here in this passage, I can tell you that my greatest fear as a pastor is that you will come here every week and that you will hear right doctrine and then leave unchanged, unchallenged. As you know, I tend to focus on bringing out the right meaning of the passage when I preach. And and there are messages where by the time I think that I've done that adequately, there's not a whole lot of time left to discuss the application. You know, we often get to it on Sunday night, but it's not always stated explicitly on Sunday morning. It's implied, but it's not stated explicitly. I see that before I preach. And often I'm crying out to God on Friday and Saturday, Lord, let it be enough. Use this to change this people. Because I'm terrified that in all that goes into the explanation of the text, you'll miss its proper application. You'll confuse mere knowledge of righteousness with the practice of it. You'll you'll mistake theological sophistication with spiritual maturity. If that happens, then I've failed you as a pastor. This is why I sign every one of my emails with 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's a reminder to me, as much as I hope it is to you, that everything I write or speak to you is to be directed to this end, to the application of the text. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be doers of the word. And not hearers only. If we are not, then we are, in the words of Paul, at best, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And at worst, we may even be the second son in this parable, who, it would seem, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is an important issue that Jesus is raising here, this connection between belief, obedience, and salvation. And it brings up a couple of key questions. In addition to establishing a couple of very important implications for our sanctification, and I want to spend the remainder of our time going over these questions and concepts together. And I want to begin with the questions. At the conclusion of last week's message, I asked you to go and reflect on what kind of a son or daughter you are based on this parable. Jesus says it's the first son, the one who actually repents, who will enter into his kingdom, and not the second, who only pays lip service to his father's command. I ask you to go and reflect on which of these two best describes you. And I would venture to say that if I were to ask that question right now, then most of you, if not all of you, would probably say the second son. And that's as it should be. If that concerns you, let me just again say that again. This is not necessarily a bad thing if you see yourself this way. In fact, I think it may well be a sign of Christian maturity. It's the one who feels the weight of God's holiness in their sin, who not only understands the kind of obedience that God demands, but who also understands their need for mercy. They understand their need for mercy because they've tried to obey and they've failed miserably. They've failed repeatedly. They therefore know how unattainable God's righteousness is. These are the ones who can come to God with the kind of faith that He demands. These are the ones who see themselves much as the tax collectors and prostitutes did, as spiritual beggars who are unworthy of God's kingdom. So you shouldn't necessarily be concerned for your salvation if that's how you answer this question. I wouldn't be. In fact, I'd actually be more concerned 
If you went to reflect on this question, and after a week of reflecting on that, said, yep, I'm the first son, that's me. I go and do exactly as my father asks. After all, that's how the religious leaders would have answered this question. That's what they thought of themselves. The fact that Jesus said that they were the son who didn't obey would have been a great shock to them. They would have been offended by the very thought that they did not do the will of their father. So don't be concerned if you read this passage and immediately feel conviction at the thought that you're the second son. Maybe you are. But at the same time, maybe you aren't. Even the most mature Christian is often going to feel as if they're the second son. But at the same time, I think this does raise a couple of key questions about the relationship between obedience and salvation that I want to touch on just very briefly, if we can. The first question that comes up is how much? How much? While it's clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, passages like this one also make it clear that the faith that saves is not merely a profession of faith. Saving faith lives, it acts, it obeys. Well, that only raises the question, right? How much? How much obedience should I see in my life before I feel like I can know that my faith is real? This connection between faith and obedience can seem really scary. It can almost make it seem like I can't ever know that I'm saved because I'm going to be constantly comparing my obedience to God's perfect standard and I'm going to constantly be going to myself, it's not enough, it's not enough, I haven't done it, I'm the second son. So how much obedience is enough? And I'd answer that in two parts. First, I'd answer by saying that it's less the amount of obedience that matters and more the sheer presence of any obedience at all. It's like we saw in Jesus' lesson on faith back in Matthew 17, where he taught this, this lesson which he actually taught just recently um, with the cursing of the fig tree and the passage right before this one as well. It's like what we saw there. It's not the amount of faith that matters, but the existence of faith. Faith is not in and of itself merit. It is not a power that earns God favor. And so the issue is less with the amount of faith that a person exercises and more uh, it's more about the object that they place it in. Jesus says faith, like a grain of mustard seed, is sufficient for God to hear and answer. I think it's more than fair to apply that same principle to the concept of saving faith. It doesn't matter the degree of your faith, so long as it is fixed on the right object. And as we saw in our last passage, if it is fixed on that object alone for salvation then it is sufficient to do the task. This means that even a small amount of obedience can be an indication of genuine saving faith. Listen, you're going to struggle with sin until the day you die. Even the Apostle Paul laments that he does not do the good that he wants to do in Romans 7. This is going to be a fact of life until the day we die. We will all at some level say, I go, sir, and then refuse to go. That's the sinful flesh working in us, and it will continue to work in us until the day we're glorified. And yet, Paul could still rejoice in Romans 7 and 8 over the fact that he would experience no condemnation in Christ Jesus, even though he wrestled with his sin in this way. How is that so? Well, he goes on to explain in the very next chapter, Romans 8, and he says, because there is this active killing of the flesh that is being worked out in him, 
He knows that he possesses the spirit of adoption who is assigned to him of the salvation that he has received in Christ through faith. And this leads me into the second half of my answer. I've said that it's less the amount of obedience and more the sheer presence of obedience that indicates saving faith. I would add another kind of P word to that. So there's the presence of obedience and then also progress. Progress. It's both the presence and progress of obedience that matters, not the amount of it, if you want to use another P word, not the perfection of it when it comes to saving faith. Again, this is what Paul indicates in Romans 8. He says that he knows there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how does he know that? He points to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He points to the fact not that he obeys perfectly, but the fact that he is continually growing in his obedience by faith. This gives assurance to the Christian that he or she is a child of God. Clearly, this means that when it comes to obedience, you can have genuine believers from all across the spectrum. Because it is Christ, the object of our faith, who saves, right? Not our obedience. And He saves on the basis of any faith whatsoever. So so long as it is real and genuine and fixed on Him, it is enough. Well, how does that person know that they have that faith? They obey. Not perfectly, certainly. But at some level, they respond to Christ's commands. And then they're also growing in their obedience. Now, that doesn't mean that we always feel obedient. In fact, like I said just a moment ago, quite often a sign of a Christian's growth will be an increased awareness of God and His righteousness that actually makes them feel more aware of their sin than they ever were before. However, over time, they can look back over their life and say, see this continual progress that has taken place. And in humility, trusting, understanding that Christ is the one that has done it, say, Christ has sanctified me. I love Him even more now than the day when I first believed. Even if they can't see it, then perhaps others can. Whatever the case, uh, this, this growth in grace, however small, will be evident in proof of their faith. This, of course, leads us to go on and ask the second question that arises in light of this passage, not just how much, but also this. Doesn't this idea direct our attention to our works for assurance of salvation rather than to Christ? You guys understand what I'm saying there? If we're saying that there's some level of presence and progress of faith, doesn't that make it seem like I'm looking to my works for assurance rather than to Christ? And the answer to that question, quite simply, is no. Not if we're understanding this principle correctly. Now, again, in in Romans 8, Paul does treat the Christian's progress in the faith as evidence of their salvation, and in a positive sense, I would note. He's not going to these believers, look, you have no works, so you're not saved. I think that's the way that we're always inclined to think about the relationship between obedience and assurance. We think of it as a threat rather than an encouragement. Paul actually treated it as an encouragement. When the Christian struggles with doubt because they see themselves just you know, fighting this fight against sin and they can't seem to win, and they go, am I in Christ? Paul says, I know that Christ is gracious And I know that He's answered this prayer. How do you know this? Just look at what He's doing in you. 
Like, we know that Christ is gracious. We know that He'll answer. But has He directed that grace to me? Paul says, I know that He's directed that grace to you. Look at what's going on in you. Look at this progress you're making through the Spirit. Believe it or not, your obedience can be a factor in assuaging your doubt. It can actually be a comfort. So long as you understand that the Scripture does not expect perfection in the believer, but merely the presence and progress of obedience as a sign of faith. However, that being said, this does not mean, even when you look to your obedience as a comforting sign of faith, that it is ever the ultimate source of your hope. After all, as I said last week, what this passage indicates is that the mere presence of works certainly does not prove the presence of faith. That's evident by what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. They obeyed externally, and yet Jesus says that kind of obedience is not enough. And we know the reason why it is not enough was precisely because these men were trusting in their own righteousness for salvation. So you can have works, and those works can be spurred along by the wrong motives. And it's not evidence of faith. This means that works alone are not sufficient for one's assurance. One always seeks to find comfort in Christ's merit alone. And then and only then do they look to their growth in obedience as a sign that they have genuinely exercised faith in Him. It's never works first or works alone. It's always faith. And then works as an indication of evidence of that faith. They reassure a person that they've practiced genuine faith and in the right object. They are never used as the basis for the believer's confidence that they will be accepted by God. For a believer uh, will always turn to the merits of Christ alone. Now again, as I said last week, an absence of works can indicate an absence of faith. And I think once we understand this, then there can certainly be the temptation to try to manufacture works as an evidence for our salvation. But again, if we're understanding what Christ has said over the past couple of passages correctly, then we can see that this response also is clearly an error. That's actually the mistake the religious leaders made. They responded to God's demand for obedience by trying to manufacture works through sheer human effort. And then they sought to find refuge in these works as the basis for their assurance. But understand, Jesus said that they were in error. They were the disobedient ones. And we've seen that they were disobedient in two senses. First, they were disobedient in seeking uh, uh, refuge in their works. They were disobedient in the sense that they did not trust. Faith is the righteousness that God demands, and their efforts at self-justification demonstrated that they did not believe. They were disobedient in this sense. They sought works without faith. And then second, they were disobedient in their rejection of the standards that God actually demanded. God demands worship, not mere performance. He demands a humble and contrite spirit. He demands compassion, not mere sacrifice. The religious leaders' efforts to justify themselves could not produce these things. Could not produce these things. Rather, they produced hypocrisy, not worship. They produce pride, not humility. An attitude of condemnation, not mercy and compassion. This was the problem for the religious leaders. In all their focus to justify themselves by their own works, they were actually unable to produce the obedience that God actually demands, which can only come by faith. 
So don't misunderstand the proper application of this parable. The temptation can be to see this demand for obedience and start focusing on our actions, say to ourselves, well, I better get busy, I better start obeying so I can have some measure of assurance. It doesn't work like that. Listen, if there's no fruit in your life, it's not because of what you do, it's because of who you are and what you trust in. The issue is your heart. It's rooted down in what you believe. So if there's, no, if there's a lack of fruit, the answer is not to work harder. Believe it or not, it's to believe harder. It's to trust. The right application of this parable is not to start obeying per se. It's to start believing. Now again, faith is active and it will manifest itself in obedience, but you cannot put the cart before the horse here. If if you lack fruit in your life, the first step is always to believe, to trust. So no, this concept that faith produces obedience, it should not cause us to be overly obsessed with our works because it means that if we see a lack of works in our life, the right answer is not to do per se, but to believe. It actually pushes us back to Christ again and again and again. Every time I see a lack of works in my life, it actually turns me back to Him to lean on Him again. My struggle against sin, if I understand it rightly, it constantly pushes me back to the shores of Christ's love. It should not carry me out into an ocean of self-effort and despair. And this leads us into the broader implication of this passage. We can see that this concept, that obedience is the inevitable fruit of faith, that it should not cause us to unduly question our salvation because it is merely the presence and progress of obedience that serves as evidence of my faith, not sinless perfection. Nor should it lead us to focus on our works as the basis for our assurance of salvation. Now again, they can be an added comfort when we doubt, sure, but they cannot be the ultimate source of my hope because it is always possible to produce works outside of faith. So we're always looking to Christ first as our source of hope and then using that thought to carry us on to the kind of obedience that ultimately bolsters this hope. And this leads us to the broader implication of this passage, which has to do with how we are sanctified, how we produce the fruit that bolsters our assurance. And that is by faith. At the conclusion of last week's message, I not only asked you to reflect on what kind of a son or daughter you are, but I also said that for those areas of your life where you can say, I go, sir, and do not go, I said to ask yourself, why do I not obey? Why do I only pay lip service to God in this area of my life? Once again, this answer is found in this idea that obedience is the fruit of faith. Jesus can require obedience, and this is not contrary to the idea of salvation by grace through faith, and the reason is because faith produces works. Faith produces works. So if we want to understand why we do not obey, this is the root answer. It comes back to our faith. We do not obey in large part because we do not believe. This is absolutely so, so key. And this is the point that I long for you to understand when I pray for your sanctification and growth. Our faith produces works. It produces our obedience. When I think of the fact that we must be more than doctrinally oriented, the thing that I pray for you, the thing that I pray for myself, is that we would believe. 
I look at sin in my life and I go, Lord, why is this still here? And I realize, Lord, help me with my faith. That's why I pray for you as well. Faith produces obedience in a couple of different ways. I've already alluded to one of these when I said that the religious leaders rejected God's standards for obedience because of their unbelief. Again, God demands worship. He demands compassion and humility. He demands the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He demands these things and not mere performance. That's what you should see coming out of your life. And as Paul says, this is not to nullify God's commands because these things will lead a person to fulfill those commands. And against these things, there is no law. But it is possible to have a form of obedience without these things, this fruit of the Spirit in our life. And if so, then it's not obedience. God wants this. He wants the heart. Well, listen, the only way that you'll ever experience These inner attitudes of the heart, while at the same time obeying and delighting in God's commands, rather than agonizing over them, is if you believe. It's the glory of God's gospel that produces both humility and worship. It's because I've been forgiven much that I love much, right? And it's because I've been shown mercy that I'm willing to show mercy to others. It's because God has been kind and gentle with me in my sin that I'm therefore softened to be kind and gentle with others when they are likewise ensnared in their sin. It's because I believe that God has set His love on me freely and that everything in my life will therefore come together for good because He is an omnipotent and wise God that I experience things like joy and peace and patience. These inner attitudes all come from faith. Faith produces obedience in this sense. It is the root of the attitudes that lead us to obey. But it's the root of obedience in another sense as well. Faith is what leads you to obey even when you don't feel like it. I think many Christians struggle to see progress in their sanctification. And and the reason is because they misunderstand how sanctification works and the role that faith plays in this process at a couple of key points. First, many Christians see sanctification as a process that occurs passively. Meaning they think it's something that just happens to them. You can blame this on a misunderstanding of Jesus' demand of worship from the heart, or perhaps you can blame it on a misunderstanding of Reformed doctrine where people throw up their hands at sin and say, look, if God wants me to obey, then He'll have to come and change me. Either way, whatever the case, the point is that many people think, if I don't feel like obeying, then there's nothing that I can do to resist my sin. Now, they might say otherwise, but if you take stock of their life, you'll see that they never obey when they don't want to. And of course, there are many instances when we in our sinful flesh do not want to obey. We often resist God's commands in our heart. This is true even after we become Christians. Many Christians do not think this way. They basically think that obedience, when it comes, is easy. And of course, obedience is rarely easy. And so they rarely obey. They just persist in their sin. The second thing that many Christians misunderstand is the concept of faith itself. You use use the the term faith around them and they primarily understand it in relation to their justification. They see faith as the means through which they are saved 
And that's it. That's its only role. Basically, they see the exercise of faith as something that is past tense, something they did when they believed in Christ, and they think it's only applicable to the realm of salvation alone. Faith means trusting in Christ's merit for your righteousness. That's it. It doesn't have anything to do with your sanctification. And this is absolutely wrong. Faith is not a one-time action that occurs in the past, nor is it applied only to the Christian's justification. It is a vital component to our sanctification as well. If you're looking at your life going, I'm the second son in this parable, it may well be because you've subscribed to either one, of, or maybe even both, of these two errors. In Romans 7, as Paul speaks about his struggle against the flesh, he speaks about the, quote, law of sin. And without getting into great detail about what this means, he's basically speaking of the power that his sinful flesh employs against him to coerce him into doing things that in his mind he says, I don't want to do. The phrase is telling because as the Puritan theologian John Owen points out, a law compels obedience through the use of threats and promises. This is how your flesh operates within you. It tells you if you obey its sinful inclinations, then you will be rewarded. And if you disobey, you will be punished. We've all felt this. There are moments where you know that an action is wrong, but it's almost painful to resist that desire. So strong is the inclination to do said action. That's your flesh at work. This urging in us to do what we know is wrong, that's the result of the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. We can't even always explain it. These desires are not logical in any way. They're just there. That's the flesh. We sin because in our very nature, we love sin. We can't explain it. We just like it. We're sinners. So we're not always going to want to obey because we have this nature residing in us. How then do we still obey even when we don't want to? Where do we get the power to resist the sinful inclinations of this flesh who uses its law against me? The answer is Christ, obviously. But Christ how? I mean, is there an unseen supernatural element to this where in some way we can't explain? Jesus just goes and simply changes our desires unseen and then just like that, we no longer desire to do the thing we once longed to do? Sure, there may be an element of that to this. But this really isn't the way that the New Testament talks about this kind of growth. Paul speaks of putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in Romans 8. He speaks of working out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in us in Philippians 2. Point is, Christ is doing it. But my will is not passive in this process. It's actively engaged, struggling even to overcome the desires of the flesh. So how do I do that? How do I overcome the law of sin that dwells in my members and wages war against the law of my mind to make me captive to its power? The answer is faith. We overcome the power of sin through the superior promises and even threats that are expressed in Christ. We put to death the inclinations of our sinful flesh, not by the sheer strength of our own determination, not by the power of our own self-control. We put it to death by desperately, desperately clinging to Christ. In other words, we resist sin and pursue righteousness 
Not simply by saying no to the flesh, but by also saying yes to Christ. We obey by faith. Yes, we struggle in our fight against sin. We exert effort in our sanctification. But there is nothing of self-righteousness in any of this because the battle that we fight is not to control our actions so much as it is to control our mind. We fight not so much to perform, but to believe. Any righteousness, therefore, that we practice, yes, we're actively engaged in it. But we get none of the credit because it's all been empowered by Christ. He is the one who strengthened us to overcome our sin. And obviously there's so much to discuss at this point. We're really just getting started on this topic. There's so much to explore here, but I'm running out of time. So we'll have to wrap, our, our, we'll have to wrap up our discussion of this t- topic tonight at 6. Of course, you can see some of the questions in the bulletin that we'll go over then. If you have any questions, you can ask them then. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, is that if we're going to be doers of the word and not hearers only, This is the path that's going to take us there. We must walk by faith. It's like we read in Hebrews today. By faith, all these saints before us have walked this path. This is how we're going to walk it as well. It's faith that gets us there. It's good to know theology, yes, but if we are going to be more than a doctrinally oriented people, then we must be sure to apply this theology through faith. The truth is that the Christian life is actually not overly complicated. You know, we can try we can make it that way very often by trying to rationalize our disobedience. But it's really not that complicated. We trust and obey. It's really kind of that simple. We believe and out of that faith issues righteousness. The problem quite often is not that we don't have the requisite knowledge to resist temptation. It's that we do not take the things that we already know and apply them by faith. That being said, of course, this is hard. It's hard to live by faith. There's so many lies, so many distractions in this world that are all aimed at taking our eyes off of Christ. I've come to think that the bulk of the Christian life, the secret to being mature in Christ, is really just fighting to keep your attention fixed on Christ because there's so many things to pull us away. So that's my prayer for you, that you would be a people of faith. You'd be able to keep your eyes fixed on Christ and Walk in accordance with what you know. That's how I pray for myself. I ask that God would help me with my unbelief. There's more of it in my life than I'd like to admit. This is what we need to be doing if we're going to be a people who reflects the glory of Christ in all that we do. If we're going to be a people who actually goes out and does the will of our Father. We must be strengthened in our faith. So let's go ahead and close by praying for this together. Let's ask that Christ would help us in our unbelief. Let's...